This is Jim Binden for Speaking of Race. In this episode, we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Dina Jablonski, Evan Pugh University professor at Penn State and the author of many articles about skin color and two books, Skin, A Natural History, and Living Color, The Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color. The interviewers include, first up, Chris Lynn, a human biologist in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Alabama, then Joe Weaver, and finally Eric Peterson, both from this podcast series. We really are interested in your personal story and the the trajectory of the science. So that is what led you to the study of skin color. Was there a particular thing that triggered you to switch from studying primate evolution and fossils to race and human skin color? This is an interesting study in the importance of serendipity in science. One day when I was working at the University of Western Australia in 1991, I was sitting in a seminar room listening to one of my colleagues from the medical school talk about the importance of the vitamin called folate in sorry in early human development and I was absolutely fascinated by this because just 3 weeks before that I had been giving a lecture on the evolution of skin for a big class in human biology. And I had been really disappointed in giving that class that there were so few papers that really explained for anyone the the reasons why human skin color varied. There were a few ideas that had been presented, but there was no comprehensive theory. One of the papers that I had read when I was preparing to teach that class was a paper by two investigators that had been published in Science in 1978, where they had observed that this important B vitamin, folate, was labile and susceptible to damage from strong simulated sunlight and ultraviolet radiation. And I realized that this was part of the reason that human protective pigmentation had evolved. So for no particular reason, I was sitting in the back of the seminar room, the penny dropped, and it all began there. Because I realized that this was an important insight that needed to be pursued. The lecture that I was listening to at the time was about the importance of folate in embryonic development and in overall reproductive success. And what it demonstrated was that if a woman is deficient in folate during her early pregnancy, she will almost certainly either abort or give rise to uh, an embryo and fetus that has a significant uh, defect that is incompatible with reproductive success. And I realized that In evolutionary biology, there are few smoking guns, but this had all the look of being one. So that's that's when it started by entirely by accident, and it's been a very gratifying trip. 
I continue to do work in primate paleobiology. I've never put it down, but I've worked more and more over the years on the evolution of skin and skin color because it's been such a captivating area and an area in which there is so much interest on the part of anthropologists, evolutionary biologists, healthcare workers in the broadest sense, as well as sociologists and politicians. So it's it's been a fantastic thing to do research on. The whole thing about skin as a physical and social interface with the world is something that that people rarely think about. But it's like when you bring it to their attention, it's like, yeah, yeah, you got a point there. And and I actually created a, a course that I'm now teaching called Skin Evolution Biology and Culture because I realized this is a rich way to bring kids who are not necessarily interested in anthropology as a major or as a lifestyle, but who want an anthropological perspective on sort of their own bodies. It's a way to bring in all sorts of sort of good anthropology, biological anthropology, archaeology, cultural anthropology, even linguistic anthropology. It is, it's superb. The next thing that I wanted to ask you about was um, if you could summarize some of the reactions, perhaps most interesting or extreme, either on the positive or the negative that you've had to your research over the years. It has been uniformly very gratifying to uh, to write for a public audience as well as speak for public audiences on uh the importance of skin and skin pigmentation in human evolution. When I first started to do this, I did it with some trepidation, and my early lectures were almost exclusively just about the nuts and bolts of the evolutionary process, and people were very interested in that. About a decade ago, I started, and really after the the publication of Skin, I, I realized that I had to tell the whole story, not only about how we had reconstructed the evolution of skin pigmentation and the evidence that we had used, but what that meant to us. What has been so gratifying for me is that there has been almost zero negative feedback. I I have a few uh, interesting, let's put it, emails and letters, uh, but the vast majority of feedback from people on you know many continents many audiences many backgrounds has been why isn't this information in our schools this information is so valuable we need everybody needs to know this everybody needs to understand this in the world i think the reception has been good because i have worked hard to maintain sort of clear speaking and the use of neutral language in giving lectures on this topic which is always hard because you know picking words is a is a is a cultural process you can't help but have a culturally freighted message at some level but to the extent that i have tried to dissect out as much sort of pejorative or inflammatory speech or labels that that have emotional associations i've tried to do so and when you present evidence to people in a framework that has been sort of dissected of a lot of its emotional content people look at the evidence and they say yeah 
Yeah, what's the big deal? And what's really exciting is when kids see it and they and they say, yeah, I understand this completely. Why have people made such a fuss? So I think so much of talking about these traditionally controversial subjects is in how you talk about them, the words that you choose. So I've worked very hard to, you know, to create sort of a, a vocabulary that, that works for describing phenomena that is not emotional. And then in talking about how people have interpreted skin color in social frameworks, I look at a fairly strict sort of historical uh, um, array of information, and I say, well, look who said this at what time, and what means did they have to disseminate their information, and who was paying for them to disseminate their information. Uh, And when people begin to dissect the historical accounts and the propagation, especially of ideas about race and racism, from that perspective, again, it becomes very clear. And you realize, okay, we've all been hoodwinked. When are people going to wake up? So uh, it took me some time to develop this approach, and I'm still always refining it. But I get relatively little negative feedback, and most people say, I've never thought about this this way. I wish I had learned about this much earlier. And young people, especially, and I talk to a lot of audiences in South Africa, uh, where I do a lot of my work these days, feel relieved. They come up to me and they say, I was taught that I was, you know, less than human, that I did not deserve to be on this earth, that I was created as an inferior being. You know, why haven't I learned the science and this other view of reality before? So it's worthwhile uh, I've I've found it very enjoyable and worthwhile, always challenging, but generally uh, conducing to a lot of positive feedback. As a follow-up to that, I think a lot about language use also in, in the course that I teach mm. on race specifically, but also in, in my cultural anthropology course, because for the most part, I find that the student body here is a lot more conservative politically and religiously mm-hmm. than the faculty, and so... One of the big challenges for me teaching here has been figuring out how to um, be really, really mindful about the ideologies that yes. I'm attempting to strip out of all the stuff I'm teaching. So in cultural anthropology, that's language and religion and kinship and pretty much all of it, right? And so I, if you could give me an example of sort of the kinds of the ways your language has shifted over time in teaching this, I would be really fascinated to know about it because I'm still working on it. I think one of the the clearest examples of this is when you're um, when you're actually describing what people look like. Uh, if you use words that have a historical association in this country, such as black, uh, people will develop. Most people who have been socialized in the United States will develop a specific sort of visualization. Whereas if you talk about people who are darkly pigmented, that visualization is far more generalized. And people are not viewing this this sort of uh, cultural construct of 
a quote-unquote black person or a white person by by the same token, they're they're looking at that characteristic. So I think refraining from using traditional race names, traditional group names, is is actually very important. You can't help but talk about people of African ancestry, African Americans, Afro-Caribbeans, or whatever. Uh, you need to use descriptive terms to some extent, but to the extent that you can use ones that have as little emotional valence as possible and as few historical associations, I think that is really important. What's the most surprising thing that's come out of your work? Is there anything that's really jumped out at you that you just absolutely didn't expect? I think one of the most surprising things that has happened is in the last 15 years, the the unveiling of increasing amounts of genetic information that has supported some of our uh, hypotheses about the evolution of skin color in a surprising way, specifically that similar skin colors or similar levels of, of pigmentation have evolved independently genetically independently in numerous populations as people have dispersed hither and thither over the Earth's surface in the last several tens of thousands of years. So that has been like a surprise and a delight that we have such an extensive palette, as it were, uh, of genes that, that are responsible for skin pigmentation that in the course of human evolution, as people have dispersed to various places and gene pools have gotten restricted and and distorted by processes of, of founder effect, for instance, that that you get similar genetically-based adaptations to environmental solar conditions using different genes. That has been just well, it's just been such a powerful illustration of how evolution can work. If you have the genetic variability that allows particular variants to develop, and if the selective pressure is there, uh, you will get a similar sort of trait appearing. That has been, at one level, expected, but looking at the mechanisms, super cool and surprising. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, a couple times now, um, you've you've said stuff like, um, you know, people don't know this, that they're surprised, they're wondering why they haven't learned this before. Mm. And so I wanted to ask a question about scientific communication. It seems yeah. that uh, just in general, the American public uh, is often really skeptical of what scientists say. Uh, we don't really have the tools that uh, to tell the difference between good arguments and bad arguments, fake science and real science. What can we do as scientists and science communicators to do a better job that would be able to communicate the kind of stuff that you're talking about so that you wouldn't have so many people coming up to you saying, I've never heard this before? I think we have a big responsibility as scientists to be more involved in the framing of of educational programs for our children. Uh, we have 
throughout most of the post-World War II era, sort of thrown up our hands and said, oh, we're going to the laboratory right now. You guys can take care of K through 12 education. Thanks very much. We'll take them off your hands, you know, in year th- in grade 13. Uh, I don't think we have that luxury. I think it's the responsibility of scientists now to work actively with educators to help kids not only sort of understand basic tenets of science, but also to help kids become scientists and evaluators of scientific information themselves. We cannot necessarily, I don't want to say teachers are doing a bad job, but we can't trust people who are not scientists to always get it right. We have to work with educators and with the educators who educate future educators about how kids learn about science, what's appropriate information at what level, and how we can teach kids to be good discriminators of scientific information. This is not difficult to train into someone or or expose someone to. Uh, We've been doing this recently with kids of middle school age, teaching them about, you know, investigating genetic information about human ancestry, genetic investigating information about traits of interest. And we've been able to educate them very quickly about, you know, what's what's going to be a good kind of website that's going to provide authoritative information and what what isn't and what how would you evaluate that and who would you ask? So we can we can actively work with educators to give kids the tools that they need. And when that happens, and this this is not, you know, this doesn't cost a lot of money. When that happens, we will have a situation where where kids have grown into young adults who are just better able to understand what's good evidence and isn't. They'll understand, oh, did this come from a peer-reviewed journal? Did this come from, you know, a case control study? Or they they will understand what this what the nature of scientific evidence is and what is legitimate investigation and what isn't. There'll still be people who don't know or who don't want to know. But I think if we if we introduce kids to some of these very simple principles and practices early on, they will have a much easier time navigating all of the information on the web and in in sort of sorting the sheep from the goats, as it were. So general scientific literacy, I hear you saying, is an important part of curriculum. Do you think that we need to teach about race issues specifically? And if so, do we do that in AP biology? Do mm-hmm. we do that in a general science course in eighth grade? Or do we wait till college? When do we start ta- tackling those specific issues? I think I think we start tackling it as early as we can. And we start in a very sort of age-specific way because kids are really observant. And, you know, beginning in grade school, they're able to understand sort of simple basic science. A lot of educational psychologists sometimes say, oh, they can't deal with this particular concept, you know, mathematical concept or construct. But many of the things dealing with human variation are simple and straightforward. Oh, people have skin color that is related to the intensity of the sun. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, kids that are about six or seven get that super clearly. So you can begin to introduce information about about the origins of human variation and human evolution early in in primary school and build on that. Uh, what we're actually developing now is a curriculum that will allow the unfolding of this information through the K through 12 uh, lifespan, as it were. And introducing as as part of this you know the genes that contribute to uh to different physical traits how these genes uh what these genes are relative to all the other genes in our body all the different genes that we share together and the few in which we differ and then you know a little later how people have thought about human diversity because you don't have to sort of come into a classroom and say, <clears throat> today we're going to talk about race. You know, it's, it's much better if it, if it just evolves naturally into, well, how, how did people come to think about these things? Giving teachers the intellectual tools to feel comfortable speaking about these things is the biggest challenge because teachers are going to be very hesitant to bring this into a classroom where they feel that they might get pushback from parents and, you know, worse than pushback, that they might get fired for what they're, they're saying. So the teachers have to feel comfortable about the content they're going to provide. But I think we can almost by way of a chemical titration, you know, grade this information into a K through 12 curriculum so that by the time a kid gets out of high school, they know the basics of the origins of humans, the origins of human physical diversity, and they understand how races were conceived of and how they came to have the power they have. So the last sort of uh, big question that I wanted to ask you was about your take on Charlottesville and other recent events. If anything, it seems like, you know, in the past several years in the United States, we're moving less and less towards a framework of acceptance and the kinds of scientific literacy that we're talking about and more and more away from that. And so both personally and professionally, sort of where, where do you think this is going? I'm very happy to, uh, to respond to that question. And I think you can, you can think about this at so many different levels. One of the issues that I've been coping with myself in the last five years is how, especially in the United States, we deal with the upwelling of racial issues broadly, Charlottesville just being the most recent example. These these issues often involve death and personal violence and and str- strong conflict. They lead to this immediate inflammatory process in the press, where we have this you know sort of two week paroxysm of of news cycles, dealing with uh, dealing with the reaction, the counter reaction, and a lot of of rhetoric, strong, some constructive, some not very constructive. But what all of these things have, what they share in common is the fact that they exist in relatively isolated bubbles. 
they come to the surface of the American consciousness for a few weeks. They sort of sit there bubbling uh, along, and people will mention, oh, yeah, Freddie Gray, oh, yeah, Black Lives Matter, oh, yeah, this is all. And and all the bubbles are sort of sitting there on the surface, and then when the immediate crisis ends, they all sort of disappear. They go back under the surface. There is no continued discourse. So it, at that at that level of phenomenology, I find Charlottesville of great concern because it was a tragic event out of a string of tragic events that has its moment of 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 high public exposure and then that seems to almost immediately dissolve into into the background of American attention. What we need is a sustained platform for discourse in this country that has never existed. Since the Civil War, there has never been a sustained move sanctioned at the highest levels of government or academe to to talk about this, to talk about this in all of the public fora that are available to us, in town hall meetings, in schools, in congressional committees. There has never been the, the societal will <clears throat> to change. So um, in that way, I mean, Charlottesville, to me, is is one of a series of tragic events that will continue to happen in the United States because of the constant submersion of racial questions and controversies and the inability sort of to, to engage in the really difficult questions about why we think this way. So... When I when I look at the demonstrators in the Charlottesville protest, uh, especially the the original group of people who were protesting about the statue of Robert E. Lee being uh, being considered for removal, what I see there is a is a group of individuals who are young, highly emotional, and and very biased in the mode of their education and socialization. These are people who have grown up almost certainly in, uh, in racist home uh, environments and in environments in which narrow views of sort of human diversity were the rule, not the exception. In the United States since the mid-1960s, it has been illegal for people to openly voice their racism. And so now we see racism being fostered like like a, a secret disease in homes and in some schools and churches, but especially in homes where people know that they have to publicly cloak their feelings, but they're still being transmitted from father to son, just like a gene. We have to figure out a way to break that chain of cultural transmission. We have to 
start that through a, you know, a program of, of education, and we have to carry it out, not just for 20 years, but for 200 years. We need, in the long term, a commitment to public discourse on human diversity and race. We've gotten ourselves into this mess over the last 350 years through cultural means and transmission of, of, of absolutely abhorrent cultural ideology from one generation to another. We can think ourselves and act ourselves out of this, but it will take a considered program that has sustained support. That was just a really powerful answer. Thank you. I, I, it makes me think um, of uh, a situation I saw in a park. This is kind of a silly example, maybe, uh, of uh, a, ki- a young kid with his mom and then an African-American man walks by and the kid says, mommy, how come he looks burnt or how come he looks brown? Right. And she immediately says, Shh, you can't say that. So it sounds like your response right there would say that even in those little localized moments, that the wrong thing to do is to say, shush, 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 that that's actually contributing, even if in sort of a liberal middle-class way, you think that it's, it's, you think that it's better because then it's taking the focus off race that instead it's pernicious because then it, kid is being taught. You're not even allowed to talk about this. Stuff. Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. I mean, we have we've become so hypersensitive to talking about this that that we don't have the vocabulary anymore to talk about it in a in a thoughtful, non pejorative way. We are bereft of a lexicon of discourse, and we're we're so worried about offending people in a in the situation that you describe that we end up uh, compounding the problem because that kid that you describe is going to wonder what's wrong with that that person you know or, you know, I just thought he was burned. I just thought his, you know, what, what, uh, that his skin was dark, and I wanted to know why. And kids, kids, you know, especially when they're six, seven, eight, that's all they they want to know why. It's, it's, it's they don't care about any sort of cultural messaging. They just want to know why somebody looks different. So we have to be able to feel confident enough to say, oh yeah, that man has dark skin because he comes from a place where the sun was really intense, and this and the pigment in his skin protects him against the intense sun. And you know, and if if a mother had learned that herself in middle school or high school, it would have stuck with her, and she would have come out with it. For more about skin color and also about Dr. Jablonski, please check the links below this podcast. 